great to be back with you all this morning as we turn to the book of Revelation. Book of the Revelation. We've been here the past three weeks, and um, you know, one of the notes that I've been trying to make is that a lot of people oftentimes they, they look at this book, and, and sometimes even Christians, they're afraid to read it because they've heard so many things about it they don't know where to begin. But the reality is the first three chapters of the book of Revelation are exceptionally practical and immediate in how they apply to our lives today. One of the notes that we would make in looking at these letters that Jesus has instructed John to send to the seven churches of Asia is that these churches lived in a real time at a real point in history and everything that Jesus said to them, he said with a real purpose and a real application so that they might be able to understand it. Just because this is what we would call apple, apple, oh, my tongue's not going to work with me today. Apocalyptic literature, that does not mean that all of it is prophetic, which means it's not all telling us what is to come. Some of it is telling us how to handle the present situation. With that said, we're looking at the letter this morning in, in Revelation chapter 2 between verses 8 and 11 that addresses the church in Smyrna. And this is a unique letter. If we're outlining the way that Jesus writes to each of these churches and the way that he gives them instruction and the way that he responds to them, and one thing that we find in common between all of the letters is first that they have a compliment, most of them have a compliment. Then they're followed by a condemnation or something that Jesus has against the church that they need to address, that they need to change. Then Jesus gives them instructions on how they can fix the problem that he has identified. And he follows that up by giving them a unique or not, not individualistic response. So he says, anyone who has an ear can do these things. This is something he's addressing the church as a whole, but he, then he wants to communicate to the individual. Well, the letter to the church in Smyrna is different. It's missing one of those key components that I've just listed out. It's missing a condemnation. Jesus doesn't have anything against the church in Smyrna. Everything he has to say to them is in fact a compliment. And some of you, uh, maybe you're waking up this morning, but wouldn't that be great if Jesus was speaking directly to our church and he said, I have nothing against you. You're doing a great job. Don't you want to be like the church in Smyrna? I see some heads nodding. Uh, maybe some of you aren't nodding because you've read the text ahead of me and you know what Jesus has to say to this church. Because even though he has nothing against them, he tells them that hard times are coming. Don't you want to be like the church in Smyrna? I say again. Let's look at our text and see if we can find the answer. Before we do that, let us pray that God would help to illuminate his word to us. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for this church. Father, I thank you for your many churches that proclaim the gospel. Father, I ask that you would be with us this morning as we turn to your word, that you would help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says, hopefully your Bibles are open and you can read along with me. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8. 
To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Don't you want to be like the church in Smyrna? To be honest, I do. I do want to be like the church in Smyrna. I I want to be able to say that I will be one who conquers. Remember that word we spoke about last week, the one who has victory. To conquer literally means to have victory. And as Christians, we get to say we have victory in Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, Oh, victory in Jesus. Don't we have victory in Him? Isn't he the one that has given us the ultimate deliverance from the second death? Isn't that what we are to fear? Well, let's look at this text and see if we can break it apart. The first thing that we'll note is that this is a church, real church, real called out assembly of people located in Smyrna. Where's Smyrna? We don't know much about that. There's there's no more discussion about Smyrna in the rest of the New Testament, so we have to turn to some archaeological evidence to tell us about this city. And, And what we find is that Smyrna, located in the Asia region, was one of the gems of the Roman Empire. Even though it was located in the southern part of Rome's ultimate dominion, Smyrna was a large, beautiful, and proud city, noted in history as one of the... Um, noted in history in the first and second century, literally as the glory of Asia, according to the Romans. Just like Ephesus, the city that we were looking at last week, the city of Smyrna was a booming um, place for commerce and place for trade. It was a city rich. It was a city of great wealth and blessing. There were several temples located in Smyrna. Remember, we noted that there were two in Ephesus. Smyrna had many more. There was a temple to the Roman gods Cybele, Apollo, Asclepios, Aphrodite, and Zeus. All of that said, Smyrna wasn't necessarily a very religious city, not like Ephesus. Because in Smyrna, the people, um, the, the common person, the, the people that lived there, they had really fallen out of vogue. It, it wasn't popular for them to be religious or spiritual. And instead, they worshipped the Roman Empire themselves. As a matter of fact, in the first century, about 23 AD, out of 11 cities, Smyrna found special blessing with the Roman emperors because they built a temple to the deity of Rome. This started to transpire and grew in increasing. It wasn't just voluntary worship that the people were instructed to do. Not just voluntary. If you would like to worship Rome, then you can go and worship him. But between 81 and 96 AD, the Roman emperor Domitian would demand, demand, This is conscriptive worship. You have no choice. You must do this. 
demand that the people would worship Caesar as Lord. And the way that they would do this is they would take a a pinch of incense and they would go to the temple of Rome and they would put it on an altar and they would burn it to the Caesar because they viewed him as a god. And they would have to declare Caesar is Lord. Literally, Caesar is Curios, the word that we use for Jesus Christ. I made reference to this, uh, I believe, two weeks ago when we were looking at Revelation chapter 1. That Paul, I'm sorry, that John has a unique phrase in, in, is it chapter, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10, when he says, I was on the Spirit in the Lord's day. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we find this phrase, the Lord's day, except in the book of Revelation. The book that was written written most likely last of all. And I ask, why did John make a point of saying that it was on the Lord's day that this was happening? It was because of the context in which he lived. As a matter of fact, have you ever read this letter and you wondered, what did John do to wind up on an island called Patmos away from all of his friends? John refused to call Caesar Lord. In the introduction to this revelation that he has recorded, he says it was on the Lord's day that I was in the Spirit because he's making a point. He's saying, I wound up in Patmos because I did not call Caesar Lord. I'm happy to be here. And while I was here, I recognized that it was the Lord's day because every day belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Were there any consequences, do you think, for not obeying this conscriptive command of the Roman emperors? Absolutely. Absolutely. Even Christians, even Jews, no matter what religious background you came from, at this point in history between 81 and 96 AD, if you did not go to the temple at least once a year and burn this incense and declare Caesar as Lord, you could not obtain a certificate that said that you were in good standing with the Roman Empire. That certificate made it so that you could apply for jobs, so, so that you could take place in commerce, so that you could sell things, so that you could provide for your family. And without the certificate, you could not do these things. It's for this very reason that as we look at the church in Smyrna, we recognize them as the suffering church. If one didn't participate in what God would call an abomination, what God declares is idolatrous, what God declares is blasphemy. If one did not participate in emperor worship, they would not receive this certificate. They would not be eligible for employment. They would not be able to take place in commerce. Real persecution often begins in this type of trade control. As a matter of fact, most soft wars fought among nations today are fought with what we call embargoes. Control on trade. This type of persecution is the way of the world, and it is sometimes and can be directed specifically to Christians. You don't believe me? Do you think I'm making this stuff up? Consider for a moment, as a member of this church, as somebody that is involved in the Baptist Missionary Association of America, you are a part owner of Central Baptist College in Conway. That college, that entity is owned by the Baptist Missionary Association. You're a shareholder. 
And by the way, if you're interested in going to college, they've recently made a promise that there will be no out-of-pocket tuition expense beyond state and federal assistance for anyone to go to that college if you're interested. If you're a member of the BMA. Where's the persecution come in? You've heard of non-discrimination statements? The truth is, Christians have to discriminate. If you're a homosexual, you are not eligible for working at that college. As an employer, it is a faith-based Christian institution owned by the churches of the Baptist Missionary Association. That puts that college at risk of losing its eligibility for federal funding. That's real persecution in our day through means of political and economic constraints. What do we have to say to this church? What do we have to say to the church in the first century, Smyrna, that was experiencing more persecution than even I can begin to imagine? Jesus says to them in verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. I know your works and your poverty. Just like the church in Ephesus, Jesus sees what they are going through. He sees their poverty. And loved ones, this word poverty doesn't just mean a little bit down on your luck. This means truly destitute. This is an abject poverty. This is an all-encompassing poverty. And the Christians in Smyrna, they were robbed. They were literally being robbed by their neighbors because it was okay to rob them because they didn't have the certificate that said that they were in good standing with the empire. They were second-class citizens. They were fired from their jobs. But see our example in this. In Hebrews 10.34, the letter written around the same time leading up to these events, everything happening in, in Smyrna, what is the exhortation that the author of Hebrews gives us? That Christians, that the early church was to joyfully accept the plundering of goods, knowing that they have an enduring possession in heaven. This is the encouragement to the suffering church. It wasn't just the Roman tradition that persecuted the church, though. Look at this. People that should have at least been sympathetic to their cause, even if they didn't believe in them. Look at verse, as verse 10, verse 9 goes on. Jesus not only knows their tribulation, their works, their poverty, but he also knows the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. uh, Slander, I think, is actually a poor word here. It's, It's the word blasphemy. Jesus accuses the Jews that were present in Smyrna of blasphemy against Christ because they rejected him. This is the people of God. This is the chosen nation of Israel. And Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. Loved ones, let's make it clear that there is no way into God's kingdom but by Jesus Christ. There is no special inheritance There is no familial ties. There is no good works. There is nothing that can obtain salvation except faith in Jesus Christ. Without it, even the chosen people of Israel, the people that God had set apart through Abraham, are damned without faith in Christ. 
The same is true for us. Just because you are raised in a religious household, just because your family says that they are Christians, if your faith is not in Jesus Christ, you are damned along with them. Because this is the state and the condition of every man. If we do not place faith in the one who has the ability to save us, then there is no hope, there is no ability for us to be saved. If we place our faith in the Roman Empire or in nations or in political leaders or in colleges or in anyone other than Jesus Christ, then the only hope and the only future that we have is the second death. Jesus Christ is the only one that gives us the ability to be, escape the second death, not just to escape it, but to be, receive, be re recipients of the promises of God, to be recipients of the blessing of God, to put on the crown of life, to endure until the end. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of hate of Satan. The Jews of the day sought comfort. In the first century, the Jews, and we have some concept of this because we remember their history as we look through the Old Testament and the many times that the Jews experienced seasons of exile. During the time of the Roman Empire, they buddied up to the powers that be. They became friends with them. They became what we would call in our modern language synchronist because they wanted to be a part of the world and also consider themselves special. This is not the promise of God. You either have both feet in the kingdom or you're not in the kingdom at all. And still today, I think and I observe that there are people among the church that I think neglect this truth. There are people that want to play ball with the powers that be in our world. And they are guilty of blasphemy against God. They are guilty of not being a church, not being the people of God, but being a synagogue of Satan. Verse 10. Jesus gives the church its marching orders. There is no condemnation to be raised. The suffering church has done nothing wrong. And so Jesus tells them, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid. It's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, really put yourself in the context here. Really put yourself in this position. These people have lost everything. They're being looted. They're being robbed. They don't have jobs. And what does Jesus say is coming next? You are about to be thrown in prison. Now we think of jail today. The concept of our jail is very different than it was in the first century. We talk about jail as a place for rehabilitation, although I don't see that happening. We talk about jail as a place for punishment so that people can serve their time and come out. In the first century, there was no concept. In the first century, the way that jail worked was that's the place you went before you could actually be judged and then killed. Because the Roman taxpayers weren't going to pay for your livelihood if you had done an atrocity against them. And the Christians were among those that they considered an atrocity. Some of you are about to be thrown in prison. And Jesus doesn't just say that you're about to be thrown in prison, but he says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw you in prison. 
Sometimes we look at the evil things taking place in this world and we want to point fingers at what, who we consider the villains to be. But Christians, we should be reminded that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is spiritual forces. Our enemy is Satan that is opposed to the work of Christ. He is opposed to the work of the church. He is opposed to a healthy church. He doesn't want to see a church focused on loving Christ. He wants to see a church distracted with polemics. He doesn't want to see a church that is pursuing Christ. He wants to see a church that is complacent. He even sows tares among the true harvest that the church might have to contend with it until the day of harvest, the day of judgment, finally arrives. Some of you are about to be thrown in prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. When I look at this, and I look at Jesus' words, he says, do not fear. It's easy for me to say that this is simply something that, that, that it's easier said than done. I mean, this is one of those moments I really want to argue with Jesus Christ. Do you want to argue with Jesus Christ? You're probably more holy than I am. This is one of those moments when I want to say, that's easy for you to say. You're 100% God. You're 100% deity. I'm 100% flesh. What do you mean don't be afraid? I am afraid. Verse 9, when Jesus says, I know, I want to point something out. He's not just saying, I know, I have an intellectual knowledge. He's not just saying, the word for that would be gnosko. The word used here in the Old Testament is oida. It's translated, I know, in pretty much every English translation that I looked at. But it's actually the verb to see. It's that aha, I see. What Jesus is saying is not just, I know your suffering, I know your tribulation, do not fear. But he's actually saying, I see what you're going through. I'm there with you. I see the trials that you are going through. I see the trials that lay ahead of you. And I'm there with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Even though the devil is about to throw some of you into jail. Even though you will have more tribulation for 10 days, do not be afraid. Rather, verse 10 goes on, be faithful. Be faithful until I come and rescue you. Is, is, is that what the Bible says? Does anyone's translation this morning say, be faithful until I come and rescue you? Until I save you from the worst of the judgment? Does anyone's Bible say that? Mine doesn't. Mine says, be faithful unto death. Be ready to die. Church in Smyrna, you've done nothing wrong. I have nothing against you. Stay faithful. Stay the course. Be ready to die for me, for the cause is worthy. And if you die for me, I will give you the crown of life. The early church had no concept of an escapist kind of view of God delivering them. God promises to deliver them, but not from death. He promises to deliver them from the second death, which is hell, which is judgment, which is being cast into a fire, unquenching fire. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. We do not and should not 
practice an escapist type of faith. Vance Havner said the saints of Smyrna had been given, haven't been given a pep talk on how to win friends and influence people. They had no testimony on how faith made me mayor of Smyrna. They were not promised deliverance from tribulation, poverty, and reviling. In fact, the worst was yet to come. I disagree with, with Brother Havner on one point. My disagreement comes in that they were promised deliverance from the second death. Be faithful until death. And I will give you the crown of life. Oh, we haven't looked at the promises that Jesus has, has sprinkled into this letter. And it's marvelous the way that Christ is able to do this. He says, I will give you the crown of life. That's a significant phrase. Only because the city of Smyrna, I told you that it was beautiful, it was well known. It had all of these temples that encircled it. And as such, you can imagine the city of Smyrna sitting up with a beautiful skyline. In ancient literature, it was referred to, the skyline of Smyrna was referred to as the crown of Smyrna. Jesus tells the church present here, not just to face this crown, not just to endure it and accept its suffering even unto death, but he tells them, I will give you the crown of life. You don't have to worry about the crown of Smyrna. I will give you the crown of life. Now, this doesn't get translated very well, but when we think of the word crown, we often think of a king's crown. In the first century, in Greek culture, Roman culture, this would have been a diadem. You've heard the word diadem before type of crown that a king or a royal person would wear in order to set them apart and identify them as royalty. It gives them authority. That's not the kind of crown that Jesus is talking about. In fact, he's talking about the, the type of crown called a Stephanon or Stephanos. It's a trophy. If you've seen pictures of ancient Greece before, you've seen gladiators and all sorts, and, and they're wearing a crown of weaved together twigs and, and leave, leaves are on them. This is a trophy that they would put on. Christian, be faithful until death, and Christ will give you a trophy. Be faithful unto Christ, even unto death, and, and Christ will reward you and recognize you with a trophy. And not the kind of trophy that the people in this time were used to seeing. Not the kind of trophy that, that a victor or somebody who would ran, run a marathon would take home and the leaves would decay and they'd turn brown and they'd fall off. Like, like a, <laughs> Michelle, Michelle doesn't like to throw anything away. And so at home, we have the boutonniere that I bought her for our senior prom. It's in our garage. It's all dried out. I'm afraid to look at it because it might just turn into dust. I love looking at it. I love remember, remembering going to the flower shop and picking out her boutonniere. I think you paid for it. Did you pay for the boutonniere? Yeah, she paid for her own boutonniere. I paid for yours too, buddy. Yeah, she paid for mine as well. I've since made up for that. What good is a trophy if it falls apart? When Michelle and I were younger... We would stay up on the phone all night long. We didn't text back in those days. You're getting old, by the way. We'd stay on the phone all night long. Most of the time, we'd fall asleep on the phone with the phone still on. 
I'd wake up somewhere four o'clock in the morning and go, well, I guess she's asleep and I'd hang up. We'd watch movies together. Different parts of Northwest Arkansas. Every once in a while, um, I talk to myself. I, if you've ever been up at the church whenever no one else is here, you might hear me talking in my office. And that might not mean that I'm in a meeting. It might just mean I'm having a very good day. My bed had on it different trophies that I had won. There was a basketball trophy and some karate trophies, and I kept them up on my headboard. And as we were on the phone one night, my hand went up, and I was stretching, and I knocked one trophy on my... It fell, and I said, stupid trophy. What good are you anyway? Except to remind me how awesome I am. In that moment, I remembered... Why I kept those trophies, why I didn't throw them away. I mean, they're nothing more than a, a desk weight, right? I mean, they, they just take up space. There's just one more thing to dust, but why don't I just throw them away? Because I look at them and I remember. I look at them and I remember all the work that I put into earning that trophy. I look at them and I remember all the discipline that built up to that tournament. I look at them and I remember victory. On that day, I remember winning and I remember what it felt like to win. Stupid trophy. What good are you? You never did anything for me. Except every time I looked at you, remind me of that moment when I had victory. The Stephanos of the Greek day would have decayed, it would have faced death. But Jesus offers a trophy of life. One that will never perish. One that will never go away. One that will never rot. One that will never grow old. One that will never tarnish. One that endures in life. We see this communicated even as Jesus introduces himself to the church. He says to the church to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last. Remember, recording that Jesus was the one there at the beginning and he's the one that will be there at the end because to him he is eternally past and eternally present all there. The words of the one who died, who faced death, who literally went into the grave and came to life. Do you know why the trophy of life that Jesus is offering you is significant? Because he's the only one that can give it to you. Because he offers us life. Because He gives it to us if we come to Him by faith. This is not the crown of Smyrna, but the crown of life. It's not the crown of an athlete, but it is the blessing of life everlasting. Verse 11. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus now changes direction and he says, there may be those among you who do not stay faithful to the end, but as an individual, this isn't just an obligation I'm giving to the church in the sense of the faithful, but it is an obligation to, that I'm giving to you, to anyone that has ears, anyone that can listen. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the one who has victory. You will not be hurt. By the second death. 
There is no fear in death for those that have placed their faith in Christ. How is it possible that Jesus can say, do not fear? Because there is no fear. There is no fear. The one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death. Matthew 10 verse 28 records the same sentiment when Jesus is speaking to the crowds. He says, the one, I'm sorry, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Philippians 1.21 gives us the idea of Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He records in his introduction, For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is... Do you know what the verse says? Say it loud. To die is gain. How is it possible that Christians can face death in this way? My life belongs to Him. I've been totally transformed by Him. I have the promise and security of eternal salvation. I have awaiting for me the crown of life, the trophy of victory. I have all of this before me. And so while I am here on earth, I live for Jesus Christ. I don't get distracted by potentially losing my job because I stand up for what's worth standing up for. I don't get distracted by potentially losing friends because they do not want to repent of their sin and come before Christ because His life is all that I have. I don't get distracted even in the face of bullies, even in the face of those stronger than me, even in the face of those who have the authority and ability to put me to death because I know where I'm going when I die. Can you say the same? Death is inevitable. Whether you run away like a coward and refuse to stand up for the things that Scripture tells us is worth standing up for, you will die. I would even go so far as to say that everyone here this morning has experienced some of the consequences of aging. Is it getting harder to tie your shoes? I remember when I used to be able to tie my shoes standing up. I didn't even sit down to do it. Last time I did that, I was afraid I'd dislocate my shoulder by falling. I sit down these days. I remember people used to always talk about, I put my pants on one leg at a time. I heard that and I went, I'm going to be special. And so I always put my pants on the floor and did two legs at a time. I jumped up. I don't do that anymore. My kids don't let me get enough sleep to have that much energy in the morning. These days, I put my leg on, pants on one leg at a time. I'm already facing the consequences of living in this world. The crown of life that Jesus is promising me also promises me deliverance from all of these things, from decay. I won't, I won't have to wear glasses. I'm going to have to get those fashion frames because I don't feel comfortable without glasses on my face when I get to heaven. Do you think they have fashion frames there? Probably not. I'm not afraid. The early church didn't have this concept of being, being, not having to deal with the world. They, they had a concept that living in the world meant living for Christ and everything that they did and even facing, well, not really facing the consequences, but leaving the consequences to Jesus Christ, trusting Him with that. The church cannot be a place for cowards. The Spirit does not give us 
a cowardice attitude. Salvation does not make you a coward. Profess Christ loudly and boldly. Because it is only through authenticity, it is only through the example that the church offers them, that the world will ever be able to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. In fact, to face death in the face of persecution, the way that the Bible records it, is a great privilege. When we consider 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul writes, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. When I think about the possibility of facing real serious persecution like the early church, I often wonder, would I have enough faith? Listen, I know standing up here in the pulpit, it probably sounds like I'm confident that I would, but the reality is I'm not. When I think about these things, I'm afraid. Would I be a coward? Would I back down? I look at 2 Corinthians verse 12 at the promise that God's grace is sufficient. And I know that while I might not have confidence right now, that in the moment, if I face Christ, if I turn towards Him, His grace will be enough for me. His power will be made perfect in my weakness and in my flesh. We may not believe that we could face the martyr's death now, but if we are faithful to seek God, if we conquer Him, His grace will be sufficient because it is sufficient, because it was sufficient for the early church, and it will be sufficient for us. not yet made the connection. And this is really my last point. Some of you don't, don't think that church history is important. And while I'd like to say shame on you, I won't. How did John personally know the church in Smyrna? The one writing this letter, the one that Jesus has given this revelation, the one that has been thrown into the island of Patmos because he refused to say that Caesar is Lord. How did he know the church in Smyrna? Why did Jesus ask him to write a letter to this church? Of the seven that he selected, why this church? Early church history recorded by Arrhenius and Tatullian, two of the most influential church historians that we have from the first century, record that the Apostle John, the one that wrote this letter, discipled and trained the pastor of this church, a man by the name of Polycarp. I'm not talking about the Pokemon. A man by the name of Polycarp. He was the elder, the bishop of the church in Smyrna. If you know anything about Polycarp, and it's all right if you don't because I'm about to fill you in, he is one of the prime examples for the early church of enduring martyrdom for the sake of Christ. He was an old man by the time this letter was written, about 85 years old. As persecution increased in Smyrna, as this conscriptive command to Declare Caesar is Lord was decreed, and all of this began. Parlecarp left the church under the direction of those in the church, believing that God still wanted to use him. He went to a remote area. He woke up from a dream as an old man, an 85 year old man, 
Some of you are older than 85. I'm not necessarily calling you old, but if you have a problem with that, maybe it's time to face the truth. We're getting there. He had a dream that he was, and from that dream, he understood it to mean that he was going to die for the sake of Christ. The Roman soldiers came to arrest him. They, they tortured one of his servants to find out where he was. And that same day that he had this dream, they came to his house and they arrested him. They were embarrassed. Can you imagine being a police officer, doing the work of the Roman Empire, and being told to arrest an 85-year-old man? They went and arrested him and embarrassed. They put him on a donkey. And as they were walking with him, they tried to convince him, listen, man, if you will just say, you don't even have to mean it. You just have to say it with your mouth. That's all you've got to do. If you will just say, Caesar is Lord, this will all be over. At first, Polycarp remained silent. He didn't say anything. Until finally he built up the courage to give them a resolute answer and he said no. And in frustration, the Roman soldiers that arrested him pushed him out of the carriage that he was riding on onto the ground. And as a bruised and frail 85-year-old man, the grace of God gave him the strength to march all the way to the Roman Colosseum on his own. We think of gladiators and we think of what was going on in the Roman Empire. Loved ones, read a history book because it wasn't pretty. When we talk about Christians being fed to lions, we are literally talking about crowds of people gathering so that people that they considered atheists for not believing in all of their many fake gods would go into a coliseum and, and fight lions so that they would be ripped to shreds in front of everyone else. Simply because they would not say Caesar is Lord. Polycarp was brought there. It wasn't his day to die, though. After the lions in the Colosseum were, were put away, the crowds had already heard the scuttlebutt in the city and they had heard that the elder, the bishop of this church was, was in the custody of the Roman Empire. And as the day was winding down, Polycarp was going to be in jail. The people started chanting, Give us Polycarp! Give us Polycarp! And they brought him out. Feed him to the lions, they said. But the lions were already in their cages. The man in charge pleaded with Polycarp. Don't make me do this. Don't, don't make me do this to you. Just say Caesar is Lord. And, and Polycarp's famous words are recorded in a document. By the way, if you have any question about the veracity of this story, it's recorded in a letter that was sent to the Christian churches in 165 AD, just 10 years after this event is supposed to have taken place. About 50 years after John sent this letter to the churches in Asia. Polycarp's famous words. But 80 and 6 years I have served my Lord and he has done me no wrong. Who am I to speak evil of him now? The people of Rome not being able... To bring out the lions to put him in death, erected a pyre. 
And they tied an 85-year-old man to a wooden stake in the center of a coliseum, and they set it on fire. Church tradition records, and, and I don't necessarily, I have no reason to think that this is untrue. The flames did not consume him. And out of frustration, the Roman soldiers that lit the flames stabbed him with a spear. And Polycarp died. Loved ones, the story of Polycarp does not end when he died. The testimony that he gave to the church carries forward to this day. Are you willing to stand with him? The reality is that Christians all over the world are continuing to be persecuted. I gave you one illustration of how I see persecution towards the church taking place in America. But the reality is in other places in the world, Christians and missionaries are being martyred by having their hands and their feet chopped off. And when they refuse to denounce Christ, having their heads chopped off. Because Christ is worth it. The last two verses of In Christ Alone carry so much weight. I've not really been able to sing this song full force without, without being brought to tears. Christians, we must believe that if we have placed our faith in Christ, that we have victory even into death. There in the ground, his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his, and he is mine bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your word and God, I thank you for your spirit. Your spirit that gives us the ability, Lord, to know you, to have strength in you, to be confident in you and to to stand in the face of those that accuse us, knowing that you are all that we need and that your glory awaits us. God, I pray that in the church today you would ignite a fire, a fire in our hearts that is so passionately ablaze for Jesus Christ that, that we would serve you even unto death, Lord, that we would welcome being like the church in Smyrna, not in the sense that we would make ourselves those who are being victims, but that we would proclaim you so boldly that nothing could possibly discourage us. Help us this morning, Lord, to sing glory and praise to your name, that as we lift you up, Lord, that you would encourage our hearts.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.